I love stories that have a good ending, don't you? When I thought of stories that have good ending, I had to think right here in Kansas to the Wizard of Oz. The scarecrow who wanted a brain is given a diploma by the wizard. The lion who needed courage is given a medal for his acts of bravery. The tin man, my favorite, who needed a heart is given a heart-shaped watch. And Dorothy clicks her heels three times and says what? There's no place like, and arrives back at her farmhouse. Ah, it doesn't get better than that. And then I thought about a childhood story I read called Three Little Pigs. After failing to blow down the brick house with the third little pig, the wolf tries to eat the little pig by climbing down the chimney and the wolf falls into a boiling pot placed there by the smart little pig and he's boiled and eaten by the little pig. Now that is a happy ending. <laughs> and you got to mention Disney, like Beauty and the Beast. This is for all the females and the teenage girls especially. Beauty weeps over the beast, saying she loves him. Her tears strike him, and the beast is transformed to the handsome prince from her dreams. They're married, and they live happily ever. There's nothing like a story with a happy ending. We finished last week at the end of chapter 3, and it's kind of a cliffhanger. We're left asking ourselves, how does this story end? It's been so dramatic up until this point. And so, so we ask ourselves, does it have a happy ending? Because it didn't start that way. Ruth and Naomi lost both of their husbands. They were widow women. And, and that was very, very tough in the day and age in which they lived. Yet we saw how God providentially met their needs by, by giving them food. Putting them on a field of a man named Boaz who, checked this out, gave them enough food, chapter 2, to last them an entire year. Now Ruth just faced the need of a husband. It would have been a miracle. She's a widow woman. She's from a God-cursed land called Moab. But it just so happens that the man who provided Ruth a year's worth of food supply was a near kinsman, a relative, which made him an eligible bachelor. And so Naomi, as a good mom would, began to scheme this plan together, and it was risky, and it basically said, okay, Ruth, go to the foot of his bed at the middle of the night, wake him up. He might be a little bit startled. But when you wake him up, propose to him. Ask him to marry you. And Ruth did just that. We talked about it last week. And Boaz was pretty scared at first. Who art thou? But when he figured it out, it dawned on him, you're the woman I've had my eye on. All during harvest. I'm very interested in you, but I'm also an honest man. And there's one hang up, one barrier I've got a relative, probably his older brother, that's a nearer kinsman than me. I've got to go try to work out a deal with him. Just know, I promise to do my absolute best. If he doesn't want to redeem you, I will. And we're left with the question, is Boaz going to work this out? Or should I say, is God going to work this out? Who's going to redeem Ruth? Well, let's see how the story ends, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. Then went Boaz up to the gate. And sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, oh, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, probably his older brother, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. Go ahead, do it. But if thou will not redeem it, then tell me. 
that I may know, for there's none to redeem it beside thee, and I'm after thee. And, near kinsman said, I will redeem it. So Boaz went to the gate. That would have been like our courthouse today. It's where official business is conducted. He met with the near kinsman. He brought in the city elders. It was very, very official. And he offered him the opportunity to buy their brother Elimelech's land. The near kinsman did what any man and farm owner would do in that day, landowner would do in that day. He said, absolutely. I'll buy the land because more land means more wealth. And more wealth means more power. And more power means more influence. But Boaz intentionally left out one small detail. The same person who redeemed Elimelech's land would also have to raise an heir with Ruth, not Ruth the Hebrew, Ruth the Moabitess. The purchase of the land, watch, came with an added responsibility to raise a son that would eventually inherit that same land. And when Boaz introduced that idea to the near kinsman, he wasn't so fired up. Look at verse 5. Then said Boaz, what day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I can't do that. I can't redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe, and he gave it to his neighbor. And this was a testimony or a contract in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. Do you see what happened? The near kinsman, when he heard the part of the deal that involved Ruth the Moabitess, he backed out. He backed out of the deal because raising an heir for Ruth would divide his own inheritance and that was not a price he was willing to pay. Don't miss this point. The near kinsman wanted the benefits of redeeming Ruth, but he wasn't willing to make the sacrifice required. So he told Boaz to go ahead and purchase the land and redeem, redeem Ruth. And then Boaz said, okay, here's my shoe. Now what's that about? Well, it'd be like somebody handing you the keys to their car. Or handing you the keys to a brand new house. It'd be like you signing the dotted line. It was just a contractual practice. It was legally binding this redemptive purchase of Elimelech's land. And just to be safe, Boaz I need to cover all my bases we need to bring the elders together. I need to seek their blessing as well. So that's what he did in verse 9. Look at it. And Boaz said unto the elders, and unto all the people, ye are witnesses this day, that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, and all that was Kilion's, and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren, and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, watch this, we are witnesses the Lord make the woman that is coming to thine house like Rachel and like Leah. Those are women from the book of Genesis. Which two did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bare unto Judah. Of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So the elders and the witnesses. The ones that had real leverage and power and influence in the city. Showed their strong approval. Not just for the purchase of the land. But for his marriage to Ruth the foreign widow woman. They even spoke a word of blessing upon them, says, upon them, them and their family. They said, I want you to have a lot of kids, just like Leah did, and just like Rachel did. That was the most complimentary form of blessing you could put upon a young marriage, is saying, I want you to have lots of children. So at this point, I'm imagining Boaz as a static. It's just like the guy that's pursuing the girl for months, and she's playing hard to get. 
and she finally gives in. It's exactly what I did to Jenny. She was chasing me for months. And I said, if I can't get her off my heels, I might as well say yes. Boaz is relieved. You know why he's relieved? Because he knew the risk involved by going to his older brother and offering him the land. Offering him this beautiful woman. And to see how God honored his integrity and honored Ruth's faith and Naomi's patience and their big request to God, I can't help but notice how God is weaving all of this together. Can't you see that? Sometimes we call it the providential hand of God. I like to call it the invisible hand of God. But the story's not over because marriage is just a small part of Ruth and Naomi's bigger goal. Marriage is just the first step to the real goal. You know what that was? A baby boy. They needed a boy to continue the family name. Someone to pass the inheritance down to. That was the desire of their heart. And that's what happened, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And they did what married people do. He went in unto her. The Lord gave her conception. And she bare a, next word, son. Dad, do you remember sitting in the Dr. K's room when we saw the little B-O-Y or something like that come on the the little screen that was before the, the, you know, real sophisticated technology, but I think we literally chest bumped when I found out I was having a boy. Just the desire of my heart, it was really, really neat, and I just think that Boaz and Ruth, I mean, it was a long nine months of waiting, and, and in that delivery room that day, I think there was a lot of rejoicing going on, because God didn't just give them a baby, he gave them specifically a baby boy. And then the narrator of Ruth gives us a picture, not of how Ruth would nurture the baby boy, but of the joy that this baby boy brought to his grandma. This is incredible. Look at verse 14. And the woman said unto Naomi, this is the women that helped deliver the baby, blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. I love this. He shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nour- nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. She took care of it. She cradled it. She loved it. She did what every grandma likes to do in the delivery room. Give me that boy. The joy that it brings to a grandmother, but it's deeper. The narrator's purpose in this is so much deeper because the word you see, he, he, he uses to portray Naomi's joy points back to the end of chapter 1, and it's just the opposite of her attitude in, in, in Ruth chapter 1, rather, where, where Naomi confesses this, I have nothing. I've lost my husband. I've lost my two sons. She had Ruth, but bitter people don't see the people next to them. They're blinded by the people that are trying to love them sometimes. And so she said this, I'm empty. I left my home full and now I'm empty. God, you made me empty. And the narrator points us back to this truth. Nope. Now God's filling her back up. God's taking her from death to life. God is taking her from empty to full. 
God is taking her from hurt to hope. That's what he said. That baby boy's going to restore your life. Now that, my friends, is an amazing story. And if I were reading the story and I didn't know better, I would close the book. And I would say, and they lived happily ever after. You know why? Because they had their baby boy. And the baby boy would grow up on the farm, and the baby boy would eventually inherit the farm, and then he would give it to his son, who would give it to his son. And that's all Naomi and Ruth wanted. They just wanted somebody to hand the family inheritance to. So we wipe our hands and say, what a great biblical fairy tale. But the miracle of that baby boy had actually just begun. Verse 17 shows us. And the, and the women, her neighbors, gave it a name. Saying, there is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. Don't let your neighbors name your kids. They'll get names like Obed. Most important parts found in the next phrase. Because Obed would be the father of Jesse. Jesse would be the father of David. Watch, this woman... These women, I should say, Ruth and Naomi, they had no idea, no idea that their miracle would become somebody else's miracle. It wouldn't stop with them. They had no idea that God, through little Obed, would eventually bring about the great king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, the giant killer himself, the author of the great Psalms 23, King David. But the story doesn't even end there. Because David would eventually have a son named Solomon, who would have a son named Rehoboam, who would have a son named Abijah, who would have a son named Asa, who would have a son named Jehoshaphat, who would have a son, who had a son, who would have a son. And eventually, look who was born into this family in Matthew chapter 1. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Little did these women know that their faith in going back to Bethlehem and their willingness to take a risk on Boaz and the sacrificial love of Boaz would eventually bring not only their own baby boy to continue their own family name, but would put them in the very family of the Savior of the world. God did more for them than they could ever imagine. He didn't just fix their present. Listen, he secured their future. He didn't just bring them hope to root chapter 4 today. No, through their baby boy, he brought the entire world hope for all of eternity. These ladies had no idea this would happen with their baby boy. They would never expect this to happen. They thought he'd be raised on a farm, be an obscure little boy, Obed, and right off into history, which just goes to show that our God is the God that does exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. Now that is a story with a happy ending that puts Wizard of Oz to shame. I call it hope in redemption. Redemption. What are we to learn about redemption from this story? Is it just a biblical fairy tale that we tell our kids and then go on, or there's something God has for us. Well, it pictures one thing and exemplifies another thing. The main character in chapter 4 is Boaz. Thus, that's the man we should learn from. That's who our application should be centered on, and we learn two things from him. Number one, Boaz pictures the redemptive work of Jesus Christ for lost sinners. 
Now follow me here because I'm just going to go through the story I just told you. Just like Boaz's redemptive work for Ruth began with an act of sacrificial love, Jesus Christ's redemptive work for lost sinners began with an act of sacrificial love. Follow this. In order to legally redeem somebody in this day, there were three requirements, three qualifications. Number one, you had to have the right to redeem. Number two, you had to have the resources to redeem. Number three, you had to have the resolve to redeem. I wonder when we consider Jesus as our Redeemer if he had the right to redeem. I would say he had every right to redeem. He's our creator. He brought us into this world. He fearfully and wonderfully made us in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ of himself. He has every right to redeem fallen man. Does he have the resources? I would argue he's the only one that has the resources. Because the only resource that was fit to qualify uh, as an adequate redemption for fallen man was the sinless, spotless blood of a redeemer. No one could live among sin and yet stay sinless except Jesus. No one can be spat upon and yet not spit back except Jesus. No one can be betrayed but still love his betrayers except Jesus. No one can be wrongfully accused but but yet remain silent except Jesus. He was qualified and praise the Lord he had the resolve. You see the nearer kinsman, he had the resources. He even had the right. But he didn't have the resolve. And our Lord Jesus Christ, his resolve is shown in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's so anxious about the crucifixion that he begins to, 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 to sweat drops of blood. And you study that scientific process in our body. When that happens, you can't experience a deeper anxiety than that. And, 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 and then he went to his father, God, and said, God, is there any other way we can redeem fallen man but this please can you let this cup of wrath pass for me is there any other way and in his spirit he knew there was no other way so he came to this with much resolve not my will but thine be done which began a series of events that were horrific he had resolve as he walked down the via della rosa got things thrown at him and a beard plucked out of his face crown of thorns pressed into his skull he resolved When he got hoisted onto a cross naked in front of his own mom. He had resolve when he got mocked for sinners that would one day reject him. From sinners that would one day reject him while dying for them. He had the resolve to endure the moment when his own father turned his back on him. Father, why hast thou forsaken me? He had the resolve to taste of death and hell so we would never have to. I'm trying to tell you, our redemption came at a price. It came because the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to demonstrate an act of sacrificial love. But it doesn't end there because the redemptive work of Christ for lost sinners, it brings abundant blessings. See, like Naomi, our redemption brings us from death to life. Ephesians 2.1, and you have to be quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. Like Naomi, our redemption brings us from empty to full. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more what? Abundantly. Like Naomi, our redemption brings us from hurt to hope. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. If you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are abundantly blessed. You may not be everything you want to be, but I guarantee you, you are not what you used to be. 
You've been given a new song. Even praise to your God. Your feet have been placed on a solid rock. Your ways have been established. If you've been redeemed, that means you know a peace that the world can't know and you feel a joy that can only come from God. It means you have direct access to God in heaven for anything, anytime, anywhere. You may not drive the nicest car or live in the nicest home or be able to afford the nicest clothes, but you still know Jehovah Jireh, our provider, and Jehovah Rapha, our healer, and Jehovah Rehrohi, our shepherd, and Jehovah Nisi, our banner, and Jehovah Shalom, our peace. I'm just trying to say if you're here today and you really know Jesus and you're redeemed by his spotless blood you're not kind of blessed you're not just a little bit blessed you're not somewhat blessed you're abundantly blessed above all that you could ask or think but just like it did in this story our redemption doesn't just bless us in the present it secures us for our future it truly brings us from a hurtful past to a hopeful future just like Obed led to a hopeful future for the nation of Israel and King David. King David had led to a hopeful future for all the world in King Jesus. Those who believe by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Listen, you are guaranteed eternal life. A hopeful future with him in heaven. Say this verse with me, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's your future if you're saved today. It's secure. No man can pluck you out of the Father's hand. So may I ask you, have you been redeemed? I not only want the truth of this story to bless those who have already been redeemed, I want this story to convict those and draw those in here today who have yet to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. My message to you is simple. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus wants to save you. Literally all you have to do today is believe in him and in him alone for your salvation, which implies that you cannot rely on your baptism to make you right with God. And you cannot rely on your church membership to make you right with God. And you cannot rely on your benevolent deeds or your good behavior or your charming personality or your good familial relationships to make you right with God. For Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. You have to rely on Jesus and Jesus alone to redeem you. And listen to me, he will if you place your faith in him. Boaz pictures the redemptive work of Jesus Christ for lost sinners. But there's something else we see in the story through Boaz. He exemplifies the sacrificial love we should show towards lost sinners. See, like Boaz, God uses our sacrificial love to help in the redemption process of a lost sinner. Don't miss this, please. Because there is someone you work with every day that does not have a relationship with God. And you've been placed at your job not just to make money, but for the purpose of bringing them to Christ through your sacrificial love. There is a family member that you know wouldn't want the preacher to come to their house and share the gospel with them, but they would be more than willing to listen to you. You have neighbors that live next to you that might not have a relationship with Christ, but they need you to go out of your way to show sacrificial love to them. 
It might include your time. It might include your energy. It might include your finances. It might include you living out a consistent Christian life even when it's not popular. It might involve you suffering mockery and facing relational rejection as you openly speak of the Lord. But think about this. Your own salvation came probably as a result of somebody in your life willing to risk those things in order to show you sacrificial love. Somebody sacrificed their time to bring you to church on a bus. Someone sacrificed emotional energy as they prayed for you without ceasing. Some incurred financial costs by taking you out to eat just to get to know you and build a relationship with you or or maybe to send you or your child to youth camp. Maybe your mom and dad worked hard to live out a consistent Christian example and have you in church whenever the doors are open and that's not an easy task. Maybe a family member risked rejection and embarrassment and invited you to an Easter service or Christmas service or friend day. And that wasn't easy for them to do. I'm trying to say every one of us who are saved, who have, if we're saved and redeemed today, we've been shown the sacrificial love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet what I've found to be true, and this is so sad, is that many of us are more like the nearer kinsman than we are Boaz. We aren't willing to pay the price to show the same sacrificial love that we were shown to a lost sinner around us. We won't give the energy. We won't put up with the awkwardness. We won't risk rejection. We won't give of our time. We just aren't willing to pay the price. God help us today. But I know that that's not the case for everybody. Your failure to show sacrificial love to lost sinners maybe isn't because you just aren't willing to do it. Maybe it's because over a course of time, You've underestimated how God could use your simple act of sacrificial love to literally bless a lost sinner in abundant ways. You understand Boaz had no idea what would incur upon him saying yes to Mary Ruth. There was no revelation he was given from God that said, Boaz, if you say yes, you'll be right in the family line of Jesus. Look at all the positives. And so often, people we work with, people in our family, our friends and neighbors, we underestimate what a simple act of liberal love, sacrificial love, could possibly do in their life. Totally underestimate it. What do you mean? I want you to take a look at two guys that were underestimated. (laughs) I can definitely see why they were underestimated. I asked for a picture from my dad, and that's the only one they could find. I asked for a picture of my Uncle Rick. He had about 50 of them. He said, what, what picture do you want? They're all studly. I said, I'll take the one with that hair, and you can't see it, but the class ring around your neck. I think her name was Trudy, but anyway. These two guys are in our congregation today. One's a deacon. One's our pastor. Grew up in a trailer home in Tyrone, Oklahoma, where their parents loved them. They loved them. They were just more concerned about alcohol and their jobs and all of that than they were about God. But there were a few people that were willing to show just a small act of sacrificial love. 
These are just a couple. I, there are a lot more than this. These are a couple that came to my mind. The Hoskinson family and David and Marilyn Thomas. They led them into their home. Taught them Bible lessons. At the church, they picked them up. Brought them on a bus to church. I've asked Ted and Darlene and David and Marilyn before, did you ever dream, expect, or even think that those two boys would be what they are today? No, it never, never came in their mind. Just like it doesn't come in the mind of bus workers who pick up kids every Sunday. They don't think, oh, you're the next pastor. You're the next missionary. You're the next Sunday school teacher. And it probably doesn't cross your mind very often. But through their acts of sacrificial love, God used them to bring Bill and Rick Prater from death to life, from empty to full, from hurt to hope. Here's the great thing. It doesn't stop with Bill and Rick Prater. Because just like Obed was only the beginning of the miracle, the salvation of these two teeny, teenage boys were only the beginning of a miracle. Little did the Thomases and the Hoskinsons know that their sacrificial act of love would help to ensure a hopeful future for generations to come. Look at this, I'll prove it to you. Show that next picture. You can't see everybody in that picture. But th that's our family. On the top left is the Bill Prater family. On the bottom right is the Rick Prater family. And you've got to understand, I'm, I'm not here just to promote our families. I have better things to do with my time than that. This is just the family I know. But this kind of story is represented all in these chairs today. And as I look at the top left, every one of those adults and a few of those kids are saved. They have a hopeful future in heaven. As I look at the bottom right, every one of those adults and a few of those kids are saved and on their way to heaven. Watch here. That many. Because of the simple sacrificial love of a few Boazes in Fellowship Baptist Church. But you understand the miracle doesn't even stop there. I'm curious how many have been saved or redeemed, helped or changed in any way spiritually because of the ministry of, of my dad. Our pastor, stand to your feet, please. Dad, stand up and look. Stand up and look. Right there. It didn't start with him. It started with laymen in Fellowship Baptist Church who had full-time jobs who had kids of their own to raise, who had bills of their own to pay, but gave of their Saturdays and gave of their Sundays and gave of their Wednesdays, even when they were tired, to love on these two boys. These two boys have loved on us, and they've loved on you. And this doesn't even represent the hundreds of people that have been affected by, by his preaching ministry and church planning ministry. And, and, and ministry all around the world to people through worldwide missions. Are you getting the idea? 
Don't underestimate what God might do through your act of sacrificial love. Be seated. I'm talking about working in the nursery. Teaching children's church or Sunday school class, working in a Christian school. All three of the girls that sang today graduated from our Christian school. Greeting guests at the door, picking kids up on a bus, singing in the choir, giving your tithe and offering faithfully and giving to faith promise missions around the world, inviting your coworker, inviting your family member, inviting your neighbor, or just doing something for the kingdom that nobody will ever know about. Keep on showing sacrificial love because we need more Bill and Rick Praters. We need more pastors and deacons and missionaries and choir members and Sunday school teachers. Hey, we need more good dads and we need more good moms. People who are desperately, I'm talking about in our world, in our community, in our homes, who desperately need to be taken from death to life, from empty to full, from hurting to hopeful. They're waiting on you to show them sacrificial love. So the message. Simply applied in three ways to three different people. If you have never been redeemed today, I believe that is why Ruth 4 is in the Bible. To give us an Old Testament picture of a New Testament Christ. Listen, please look at me. If you don't know that heaven is your home, and I believe Christians in these, in these chairs today should start praying right now. If you don't know heaven is in your, your home and is in your future because you don't know if you've trusted on Jesus and Jesus alone, please, please listen to me. You are here in this building today because God brought you here. This is not an accident. And the Bible says your life is but a vapor. It, it, it comes and then it vanishes away. In other words, your life is short. And it says in another portion of scripture, boast not thyself or look forward, don't look forward to the future or tomorrow. Why? Because thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You don't know if you'll have another Sunday. If you're relying on your baptism as a baby, it's not good enough, my friend. If you're relying on your benevolent deeds, it's not good enough. I don't care how generous you are. If you're relying on your, your past heritage, it's not good enough. Everyone must have come to Jesus themselves. And I want you to know that, that, that even if in your heart you can't reconcile some things about God and some things about your life, and in your heart, you think to yourself, how could a loving God do this and this and this and this? I just can't put my faith in that loving God. That's why it's called faith. Because faith is coming to a God you can't fully understand. Getting saved and placing your trust in a God that in your mind has disappointed you and let you down is very, very difficult. But it, it wouldn't be called faith. If you could understand everything that's happened in your life, it wouldn't be called faith. I'm going to ask you today, man, woman of any age, old, medium age, young. I'm going to ask you to meet me, rather meet our pastor in the front of this, this room right here in just a few moments. It'll take courage. It really will. I'm going to ask that you step out 
whenever the instruments start playing and you see Christians come to the altar, I'm going to ask that you step out and say, I need to get saved and he will show you how you can, you don't have to say anything publicly. You won't be forced. You won't be embarrassed. It's embarrassing enough just coming out. I get that. But I hope you'll do that. There's another group in here and it's those that have been redeemed but you've taken it for granted. You've been abundantly blessed because of your salvation and yet you've lost your song. You've lost your shout. You've lost your praise. You can't remember the last time you were overwhelmed simply over the thought that you are a child of the king. It takes forever to stir you up. No, you were stirred up yesterday when your team scored a touchdown. Don't get me wrong. But coming into church, it, you don't get it. You're distracted. You show no type of expression or emotion at all because there's no, nothing going on in here. You're just coming in here and doing your time, and you're leaving. Not even counting the fact that you've been abundantly blessed by the God of your salvation. And you need to come to an altar and ask him to rekindle that thankfulness in your heart. And then there's some in here, you're thankful, but you haven't shared it in a very, very long time. And you've stopped showing liberal love, and acts of kindness, and inviting. Maybe because you underestimate what might be accomplished through your sacrificial love. But I hope I've demonstrated that God can take your simple act of sacrificial love and do more with it than you ever dreamed or imagine and you need to come forward and say God revive in my heart a belief that you can change people through me stand to your feet every head bowed and every eye closed